Our scripture reading today is Acts 15, 1 through 11. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between, between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by fire, by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Father, thank you for this time together today. Um, we thank you for this promise, and we love that we are saved through Jesus. Be with Grant as he teaches us from this scripture today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. You know, I enjoy the fifth Sundays so much. Uh, I miss the worship team, like I miss playing, playing music with friends. Willie Nelson was right. Playing music with friends is just, uh, is just an amazing thing. <clears throat> but on the fifth Sunday, I can hear you guys sing, and that's awesome. Bye, children. We did it. I love hearing you guys sing. Uh, it's, it's so good. Um, we're going to get into Hebrews next week. So have you been reading it? Just read it every day. Read Hebrews a whole bunch. Uh, study it yourself. Be a Bible scholar. Be a Bible nerd. I can't be the only Bible nerd in here. Um, and uh, so we're going to hop in next week. And I thought we'd kind of have a, a, a getting us ready for Hebrews Sunday today. I thought we'd take a, a little time and talk a bit about the background discussions, like every book in the Bible. Um, when you hop into the book of Hebrews, you're hopping into a set of discussions, arguments, uh, differences that were going on in the first century. So you don't hop in uh, with, without any context. Well, if you hop in without any context, you, you know, you're... You can't swim. It's not a good spot to be. Um, but if we hop in with some like, oh, I see what's going on here. This is a very particular discussion from a very particular angle that the Holy Spirit is using to teach people in the first century. Remember, the Bible was written for you. It was not written to you. It was written to people very different than us in a different culture but still people. Um, so let's spend a little uh, bit of time today kind of entering into one of the biggest discussions, controversies, theological um, difficulties of the first century. 
Well, it seems like the author of Hebrews at times has Gentile converts in mind. It's pretty clear, this is going to blow you away, that the letter that we call Hebrews was written to Hebrew people. I know, I know. Um, And there's a couple of big themes that we'll be tracing as, you know, we take a short 10 or 12 month journey through Hebrews. Um, One, over and over, so these are are Jewish people who have converted to Christianity. We, we might use that word a little more than they would use that word. These are Jewish people who had found the Jewish Messiah and had made the decision to follow Jesus. And the warnings or the, the themes that are going to pop up over and over and over are, first of all, repeated warnings not to fall away from the faith. It turns out that following Christ in a world opposed to Christ, can leave a body discouraged. And so over and over, the author of Hebrews is going to tell their reader, don't give up. Hang in there. And not just hang in there for no reason, but the other theme that we're going to be tracing through the book of Hebrews with great joy is the superiority of Jesus over the Old Testament law. And that's not an unfamiliar thing to your ears. You've been in church a while, most of you. Um, And so we know Jesus is superior to the Old Testament law. And we can make something more of that sentence than is actually intended. We can start to think, well, the Old Testament law, that's because it was bad or it was flawed. But that's not true. In fact, the Old Testament law was good. In fact, the Old Testament law was fantastic. In fact, the Old Testament law was an incredible um, you know, matter of God's grace poured upon the world. And so I would like to take some time today to look at the goodness of the Old Testament law. And where we're going here in you know, just a short hour and a half or so, Where we're going, you guys stopped laughing at that joke years ago. I don't know why I still do it. Um, where, Where we're going is that when we see how great the grace of God is in the Old Testament law, when we see the not just the justice of God, but the mercy of God and the love of God in the Old Testament law, it gives us more reason to marvel at the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to inaugurate a kingdom because the old one was bad. No, rather, Jesus came to give even more mercy, more life. So just a couple of definitions. I don't know. Okay, so just a couple of definitions. I'm going to say the law and grace and Christ. I think we have a pretty good definition of who Jesus was. But, but by the law, what we mean is the whole system. So I'll even read the Ten Commandments to you today. But we're not just talking about the rules. We're going to use the word Pharisee. And a lot of times when we say law, uh, we, we kind of automatically go to legalism and 
the law does lead to legalism. We'll talk about that. But, but what we mean by the law, especially as we're using it this morning, is the whole system by which Old Testament saints, people who you'll see in heaven, people who are faithful followers of Yahweh, this is the system that they use to interface, the God-given system that they use to interface with Yahweh. So we're talking about not only the commandments, but we're talking about the Levitical law and the laws that would govern worship and the laws that would govern the ceremonies and feasts and, and, and all of that stuff. Ceremonial laws, moral laws. What, how do we know what a sin is? What are the commandments? What does God want us to do? And also civil laws. Not only how should I be as a person, but how should we be as a collective? What does it mean for us as a community to be holy. So all of that that Moses passed down on Sinai, that is the, the law. And by grace, we mean this, the idea that God loves you just as you are. Now, there really is very little in the Bible that would give us an understanding that God wants you to stay just as you are forever. But that God loves you despite the darkness in your heart. This is what we mean by grace. The Sunday school answer, grace is unmerited favor, right? What we mean by unmerited is there's, you didn't bring much to the table, man. It wasn't your goodness. It wasn't how handsome you are. It wasn't the mustache. Um, no, rather, there's nothing, no good reason for God to welcome you into his family. And yet, what we mean by grace is just as you are. Selfish and thinking about your, your own, self-aggrandizing, greedy, lustful, whatever you bring to the table, God's love penetrates through all of that and loves you and even welcomes you just as you are. Being loved comes first. That's why it's that, that we believe that so much around here. We put it in the mission statement. We, we say it every, every Sunday. That the first idea is not you get your act together. The first idea is not be like a Christian. Rather, the first idea is that you would learn to be loved by the God of the, who created the universe and loves you just right now. So be loved, and then we worship. Then, then after we understand how great God's love is for us, then we have the opportunity to respond, to, to live differently in light of that love. And all of that lifestyle that bubbles out of being loved, that's worship. But it's not the other way around. And there's two kind of big ideas that I think we'll still get trapped by. This is one idea that maybe, I don't think any of us would say, yeah, I think this one's right. But we do fall into this pretty quickly that our behavior comes first, the stuff we do comes first, and that is what makes us who we are. That we belong in the kingdom of God because we have first acted like we belonged in the kingdom of God. That we stopped saying naughty words, and we stopped um, talking to bad people, and we stopped uh, robbing liquor stores, and we got our act together, and then God said, oh, look at your behavior. You obviously belong in our cool kid club. Guys, not only is this heresy, 
But it's one of the most destructive heresies of our time or any time. But do you see how easy it is to fall into? Because you see somebody, and it, you know, you see somebody in the street that you don't know who's, who's living an ungodly life, and you know, that, that, that's not that hard to deal with. You go, oh, I sure hope God loves them and God reaches them. But it's somebody in your own family, somebody in your street, somebody you deal with a lot, who has behaviors that don't demonstrate a, a heart that's seeking after the Lord. And it's pretty easy to look at them and go, you just need to get your act together. You just need to stop the sin so you can be approved before God. And that is so close to being right that it's one of the worst kinds of wrongs. Rather, we have to decide if, if that's who we are or if it's this, that God welcomes us broken and filthy, just as I am. And as I come to him and am welcomed into his family, and of course it takes repentance, he loves me. I have to let him love me back. He's not forcing his love on me, but he sure is offering it to me. And as I come to him and I go, I'm such a mess. I, do I have to take my shoes off before I enter? Like, do I, should I clean up first? Look at this. I can't keep the shirt tails tucked in. It's a mess. What should I do? I didn't wear a tie. I hate this lapel. What do I need to do? And it's not that I don't need to change as I follow Christ, but it's that the change is born out of my belonging to him. It does not precede my belonging to him. So this conflict, this tension between Old Testament law and the new law, the, the law of Christ, is the motivation for a lot of the New Testament. Like if we don't have, if we're not wrestling with this, if you just go, oh yeah, of course. Well, the, well there's a lot of the New Testament that's not going to make a lot of sense. We see this tension a lot in the Gospels. In fact, Jesus goes, this is like, this is like trying to pour new wine in old wineskins. If you guys are just so stuck in this behavior, behavior, law, 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 Old Testament, you keep talking. Look, Moses is even a type of Christ. Moses was so awesome that the people in the New Testament go, Jesus is even better than Moses. But you guys keep worshiping Moses in the Old Testament. It's like we try to put the grace of God in you and you just explode. You can't even take it. New wine and old wineskins. Like it's too much for you. There's a woman caught in adultery and brought before Jesus in, in the Gospel of John. And, um, and they're like, well, Jesus, law. You know what the law says. By rights, we should stone her. And I, I've, I've preached through that before and I'll preach the whole thing again. But at the crux of it, Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what. Which one ever of you haven't broken the law? You throw the first stone. And they go, man, we are in a pickle. Are we people of the law or ain't we? Am I a legalist for her? But not for me? So this tension is really all through the New Testament. Jesus' disciples pick some heads of grain on the Sabbath and all the local religious leaders go, hey, 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 you can't do that on the Sabbath. Well, is it law? And they weren't breaking the Old Testament law. They were just breaking the, the rabbinic law that had kind of grown around the Old Testament law. But still, the, the, the question is still the same. Are the hungry disciples more important than your rules? Or are your rules 
more important than the hungry disciples. Similarly, in the same kind of season of Jesus' ministry, there's somebody with a withered hand that shows up on the Sabbath and and oh my gosh, the, Jesus is already healed on the Sabbath before. They've had this argument already. And so Jesus does something that doesn't even break their Sabbath rules. He doesn't even work. He just says, hold out your arm. And as the man's arm is healed, everybody in the building is struck with, well, what do we what do, I do? Is this okay? Is the man more important than the rules? Or the rules more important than the man? I don't think anybody says that the rules aren't important. I, I don't think that's heresy too. In fact, um, you want to learn a dorky word? That's antinomianism. You can call your friends later and go, we discussed antinomianism in church today. That just means there's no law. And that's the other end of the legalism spectrum, right? To say, no, there's no rules. Christ's love is so good, do whatever you want. No? Behavior is important. But is it more important than the grace of God? Is your behavior what defines you? And as we reach out to other people, is their behavior what defines them? If I'm willing to accept that my behavior is not what defines me before the eyes of God, but rather it's God's grace that defines me before the eyes of God, then I must, if I'm going to have any like philosophical consistency at all, I have to also say the sinner next door is not defined by his sin either, but rather by the love of God. Okay, I'm going too much. The book of Galatians was written in view of, of, of this argument. Much of the Sermon on the Mount largely focuses on this issue. You've heard it said, the law, but I'm here to tell you, expand. Think about people. So let's spend a minute figuring out why this was such a big deal to first century Jews, and then we can spend a minute thinking about why this is so important in us, to us, and then we can dig into Hebrews next week with some context, some deeper understanding. Maybe we should ask now, why does this matter to us? Why, why would most of us who are Gentiles, I assume, um, at a decidedly Christ-centered church, like, hey, make a big deal about Jesus. That's not super surprising. You were expecting to hear that this morning. I hope that's why you were here, so we can all make a big deal about Jesus. Why should we care about this first century tension between Old Testament law and the grace of Jesus? Well, first of all, let's be honest and humble. We still have a propensity towards legalism. We need these words as much as a first century Jew because we too can very easily slip from righteousness into self-righteousness. It is still and will always be tempting to put our behavior as the cause of righteousness instead of the result of righteousness. Are you with me? Did that make sense? Also, we need this because a good church folk, we still need Jesus. I need the grace of Jesus. You need the grace of Jesus. 
Because the law, while it was good, was never a game that we were going to win without the grace of God. Even in the Old Testament, it was always the grace of God drawing people to Him. It was never the law went out and people went, yeah, we want to live like that. Rather, it was always the prophets calling people back home. It was redemptive act after redemptive act. It was God's rescue, God's salvation, God's redemption, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's salvation. These are not just New Testament ideas. Is, lastly, we need this because God desires us to pass on grace, not judgment. And it's pretty easy for us if we don't keep Christ just so overwhelmingly in front of us that we can't see any of, of, of legalistic tendencies at all. We are so enamored with the love of God. We are so uh, consumed by the person of Jesus. If we are not there, it is pretty easy for us to go, God has saved a wretch like me and I am unwilling to be kind to the wretch next door. God does not desire for us to pass on judgment. He's got that covered. Judgment's coming and he hasn't asked us to partner with him. But that we would, like a mustard seed, cause the rain of forgiveness and grace to go into our community, that's what God's asked us to do. So if we are hung up legalistically, we are hamstrung in our effort to fulfill the Great Commission. We end up starting to desire to and live and argue so that the world might be more Christianly, more religious, instead of desiring the love, forgiveness, and grace of God to seep out from us into the hearts of other people so God can change them. What a shame it would be for us to spend our time on things that don't matter. So the discussion of grace and law came to a head very early in the early church. <laughs> in fact, we have a discussion recorded for us in Acts 15 that Susan has just read for us that I'd like to look at together. Do you have your Bibles open, Acts 15? I mean, I've been talking for like 20 minutes, yeah. And if you, if you might put, a, put another finger over in uh, Exodus 19, if we're going to talk about the law, we should probably read some of it. So Acts 15, oh, oh, are you doing it? Thank you very much. Um, whoa, oh, oh, goodness. Oh, <laughs> you do it and I won't, I promise. <laughs> Acts 15, one, um, that's my wife, I have a crush on her. Um, <laughs> starts like this but some men came down so let's get our heads into into where we are some men came down so paul is in antioch and things are going great and for like it's just starting for the gentiles to like come to christ the the church is not a jewish movement for very long it soon becomes an everybody movement so some men came down from judea it's actually they went north but you're always coming down from jerusalem there's o there's only down so they come down from uh, judea um, and we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. We're in Acts 15, and we, also, we already have a denominational fight. <laughs> We've already got two main ideas about how we should like, worship Jesus, and they have started like, competing camps um, in the same town. Some Jewish believers had come down from Judea. They showed up in Antioch, and they were teaching that to be 
a Christian, you first had to become a Jew. Now, I don't want to, I, I mean, this isn't a one-to-one comparison, but it's something in the like, if you want to be a Christian, first you have to stop uh, dressing too provocatively. If you want to be a Christian, first you have to stop smoking weed. If you want to be a Christian, you have to stop going to the right, wrong kind of movies. If you want to be a Christian, you have to like be in the right political party. If you want to be a Christian, you first have to, for all of the reasons that we would have to put a burden like that on somebody, they are so minuscule compared to the burdens that these Jewish Christians felt. Let's keep going. So, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, you think? Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. I wonder if this was like, man, Paul, Barnabas, would you go up to the apostles and have this conversation for us? Or if this is like, look, go talk to the apostles. We're tired of you guys arguing about this. I don't know. So, verse 3, so being sent on their way um, by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. This was a fun time. So there's no small dissension and debate. It's a big deal to Paul. So the, the elders... Uh, or I'm sorry, the church elects Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders. And let's think for a minute about who these people are. Who are the apostles and elders? The apostles, capital A apostles, the people who sat at Jesus' feet, the people who sat at their feet. You know them. They wrote, they wrote your Bible. This is what the early church started doing was uh, sitting at the feet of the apostles. Apostles, Peter and James, John, apostles. But who are the elders? The church is like 20 years old. Who could the elders be? Like who's been around long enough to be the elders at the church in Jerusalem? It's an important question. Because remember, this wasn't a separate movement. Jesus didn't rise from the grave and have everybody go, well, we're starting a new religion. No, he's the Jewish Messiah. At the very beginning, this was just a Jewish movement. So, Jesus, as the Jewish Messiah, had Jewish scholars and elders who recognized Jesus. Those were the first Christian scholars and elders. So, you, if you have somebody really old, say 50, and they were 30, I'm 50, just so you know, um, they were 30 when Jesus rose from the dead. They've been to seminary, they sat at the feet of rabbis. They've become a rabbi and a scholar themselves. They have most of the Torah memorized. And then they find Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Now, wouldn't it be most natural for them to go, well, this doesn't mean anything anymore, but rather to say, oh, I see Jesus on every page of my Torah. I see Jesus on every page of the prophets, every page of the writings. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. If we want people to know Jesus, they need to know this. That would make sense. This is an interesting group of people to hear this debate. Does the law, apostles and elders, the law that you dedicated your whole life to, does it matter anymore? 
Are we just going to let the pagans into our group on a simple profession of faith? Some Greek guy who's been like living it up, some Roman soldier who like killed my, you know, my uncle or whatever. Like, we're, they're just going to be like, we believe in Jesus now. We're going to go great. Come on in. It's pretty hard, isn't it? You see the actual, like this is not just an ap- academic conversation. This is difficult stuff. And again, it's not exactly like what the modern church deals with, but you can see the analogy pretty easily, can't you? Somebody walks in, and they're just different, and they do stuff different, and they use weird language, and they won't stop cursing in the quad. You can't curse at a Baptist quad. We all know that we curse at football games after church. <laughs> what do, we, do we throw this stuff out, or does it still matter? So off go Paul and Barnabas, talking along the way, taking the long way to Jerusalem, letting everybody know that even the Gentiles are trusting Jesus. It's an awesome time, but it does remind us that culture matters to people, and we have to decide if our culture is more important or less important than the grace of God. Like if what it meant to save seaside was to have heavy metal worship. Now I know some of you think I would enjoy that, but I'm a punk. I don't like metal. It would, it would bother me. <laughs> or if something foundational about the culture of the way we meet. We had to meet at 6 a.m. <laughs> I love Jesus, but I'm not sure. This stuff matters. So verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed um, by the church. That's good. The church welcomed Paul. That's a good start. Um, By the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. Well, that is not something we think about very often. Some of the first Christians were Pharisees. I mean, I guess of course they were. But so many times in the Gospels, the Pharisees are the antagonists that we forget that they were the ones most closely waiting for the Messiah. So seriously. Why? These Pharisees who've come to Christ, why this insistence to insist that people adhere to the law? Why would they insist that people adhere to the Old Testament law? Well, I'll tell you, my friends, because the law was great. It's a great way to live, and they knew it. Would you open up if you put a finger in Exodus 19? I don't know how much of this I'm going to read, but we'll just go for a minute and see how it goes. On the third, so this is, if you remember where we are in the story, the people have come out of uh, Egypt. God has sent Moses. Moses has led them. Uh, Charlton Heston, guy with the stick, waters part. The whole thing has happened. Depends on your generation. For some of you, it's the prince of Egypt, but whatever. All that stuff, the big thing, the whole thing has happened. 
A lot of excitement. God is our redeemer. God is our rescuer. But let's remember a couple things. First of all, this is happening in real time. So our story today is three months after that. So you can imagine like, yeah, we're free from Egypt. And then they march out and like, wow, the water parted and God rescued us. And then, and then three months, they're just sitting at the foot of a mountain going, well, what do we do? Like, how do we live? We have to build a society now? I mean, who are our doctors or scholars or politically minded people? Who, who are we? Well, who we are is maybe two million slaves. These are not people who had been high parts of society. These are not people who were educated. These are not people who you would choose to make, to build a culture with. They were people who were absolutely the downtrodden. And you know how slaves get treated. No dignity, no real sense of family, no real sense of connection. You're a cog that's, that's just for the purpose of building cities to the glory of other gods and other men. And so that's where we are in history. And on the third new moon, so three months after people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, and on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness, and there they encamped before the mountain. So do you see the like, I'm sure it was like, uh, you know, adrenaline, adrenaline, adrenaline. Then you get to the foot of the mountain and you go, oh, what do we, what do, we do? How do we do this now? Did, what did God save us for? So verse 3, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. So God is telling Moses, here's what I want you to tell uh, the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I did that. I loved you. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. So a lot of Old Testament scholars <coughs> say what we have here is the picture of an ancient proposal and marriage ceremony. So God telling Israel, I love you so much. I'm the one who brought you out of slavery. That's how much I care about you. I'm the one who went and got you. You yourselves have seen all this, bore you on eagles' wings, all that. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, a proposal, an offer, a covenant offer, down on one knee, I bought a ring. If you will be with me, I will be your husband. Watch. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What? Is that better than a kingdom of slaves? Yeah, by a lot. If you will obey my voice, if you will take me to be your God, I will make you. I own the whole earth and I'll make you my treasured possession and I'll give you purpose and meaning. You're going to be a holy nation of priests. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set them before uh, and, set them, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, 
We'll think about it. No, they didn't. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yes, I'll marry you. God, thank you for rescuing us. You're the God of all of heaven and earth, and you want a relationship with us? Well, of course we'll obey you. Yes. And Moses reported the words um, of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. So presence, God, I'm going to draw near to the people. This is not going to be a far away kind of arrangement, but if you'll obey me, I will take you as my treasured possession. Oh, so amazing. The law was an identity. We could be the people of Yahweh. Yahweh is the mighty God, the most high. We saw what he just did to the gods of Egypt. Holy smoke. We're going to be his people. It's a promise. The law is a promise of protection and provision. If we obey God, he will take care of us. Awesome. Again, we saw how he took care of Pharaoh. The people had no problem saying yes. Of course, we'll obey. To be in a covenant relationship with the God Most High, we'll do anything. So God, what is it? What do you need from us? What's our end of the covenant? We've seen how it is with other gods. So what do you want? Like child sacrifice? How's this work? Like you're angry all the time and to satiate your wrath, we have to, you know, like the ants in the movie Ants with the Crickets, or was that a bug's life? Where they have to bring all of their stuff so the crickets don't eat them. Is that, is that the kind of relationship this is? That's the kind of relationship other cultures have with, with other gods. So is it like that? Does it include like temple prostitution? Do we have to give our daughters to the temple? We have to give our sons to the work. Do we have to cut ourselves? Is that how it goes? That's how, that's how all these other gods, you get their attention. with our su- You delight in our suffering, so you keep us under your thumb. Is that the way it is, God? And God says, no. In fact, don't worship like that at all. My law will be totally different. My law will teach you to live with dignity. No more seeing yourselves as slaves. No, you are image bearers of God. So, when you read the Ten Commandments in that light, I won't read the whole thing to you, but, but you jump over to, to verse 1 of chapter 20. Verse 2, um, all right, I lied. Verse 3 of, of chapter 20, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. Yeah. And we, you know, there's like this like internet kind of logic that's like, oh, God won't let you worship anything else. Yeah, that's how relationships work. I will have no other girls except for Tiffany. That does not seem like a bad deal to me. That's a good deal. That's a covenant. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in the heavens. I'm not, just coming out of Egypt, they need to know, I'm not the frog god. I'm not the bird God. I'm not the river God. No, you can't. You, you, there's not, you are the image. I, I, you can't worship me like that. Because then you stop, start worshiping frogs and birds. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. If this is a marriage ceremony, this is hugely important. You're going to take my name. 
your name's going to change. Right? Tiffany went from Roberson to Combs. Took my name. Don't do it in vain. Don't do it in name only. Don't say I'm a believer. Don't say I'm a person of God and then go worship other gods. Don't, Don't say you're in my family and then go live like you're not. That's what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't do that. Can you see how it's like start living like a human, not like a slave? Do slaves take a day off? No. You work slaves till they die and there's more slaves. You, take a day off. Call it a Sabbath. Don't do any work. Be with your family. Worship. Rest. Like humans, not like slaves. Honor your father and your mother. There's no sense of family in the life of a slave, but you, you take care of mom and dad. When they get past the ability to make bricks, they haven't lost their value. You honor your mother and father. Don't murder each other. Who cares if a slave murders a slave? Only the slave owner that got cheated out of a slave. It's not murder. It's more property damage. Don't do that. Act like humans. Don't commit adultery. Man, make covenant promises with each other. Don't steal from each other. You own property. You are not property. Don't bear false witness. Don't don't lie about each other in court. And don't covet your neighbor's stuff, man. Trust that what God has given you is enough. So what I'm trying to say is that to the first century faithful Jewish person who's lived in this kind of tradition his whole life, the law was awesome. It gave Israel a healthy, faithful relationship with the one true God, identity, dignity, community. And actually, in the first century, they probably look around at the way the Greeks are living, the way the Romans are living, with all of the, you know, licentious, um, you know, like, gross sexuality and, and all of the, you know, like slavery and all. They look around at the way Rome and Greece and all of this. And they're like, hey, we need to rescue people from all that. Why don't you come be Jews where there's dignity, where you understand that you're born in the image of God? They probably looked around at the polytheistic, selfish, licentious lifestyles of Greece and Rome and thought, let's teach people to live a better life. Let's teach them to look like Jews so we can teach them to look like Jews so they can understand the Jewish Messiah. It'd be pretty easy for us to say, my neighbor needs to start living like a Christian so I can introduce him to Jesus. And that is so close to true that it's the worst kind of lie. No, what they need is Christ himself. The grace of Jesus. All right, I'll try to hurry up. Um, Back to Acts 15, verse 6. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. As an aside, I have lots of notes, but I won't get into it. Um, But uh, it's interesting that Peter and Paul are the two who are leading the intellectual charge away from law and towards grace because we know their story. 
Peter has the story of the, the sheet coming down and like big dramatic. He learned this in a big dramatic way. Paul got knocked off his donkey by uh, the light of God. Like these men did not learn this by like reading their Torah and going, you know, I'm starting to think we're legalists and we need to be people of grace. No, rather they had these big dramatic encounters with God that taught them this and now they're teaching others. So Peter continues, verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. God seems to love the Gentiles so much that remember, and Peter's saying this, wouldn't it be like more human for Peter to go, what happened when I spoke at Pentecost will never happen again. But rather, Peter goes, what I happened at Pentecost was just the start. It's happening everywhere. It's happening in Greece. It's happening with Romans. It's happening all over. God doesn't seem to draw a distinction between us and them. That's something we could remember, isn't it? Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Oh, okay. I don't have time for all this, but a little bit of it. Why are you putting God to the test? What happened in the wilderness was God testing the people. If you will obey, then I will be faithful to you. The faithfulness of God is not in question. I'm going to be faithful, but you're going to be mine if you will hold up your end of the bargain, if you will, will uh, obey my voice. So that is God. And over and over in the Old Testament, God tests the people. And it is good for God to test us. But what we naturally do is we be the ones who test God. We one time ended up with a cocker spaniel because we foolishly told our daughter who had never made her bed without a fight in her life that if she made her bed 30 days in a row, we'd get a dog. That stubborn kid, she has made her bed probably to this point, 30 days of her whole life. But it was those 30 days. So we, being the parents, were like, we want to train our daughter, go make your bed for 30 days, you can have a dog. It was Bob the dog, good dog, or good guy, bad dog. It was not good. He peed on you every time you walked in the door. It was rough. Um, now, if she, as an eight-year-old, would have said, Mom and Dad, you need to fix me pancakes for breakfast every day, or else I'm going to pitch a fit on the way to school every day. If she would put us to the test, well, you would say, no, that's, that's not how this works at all. That would be inappropriate. But us refining her, putting her to a test, well, that's, that's being a good parent. So God, over and over, so what I'm saying is this is a loaded word coming out of Peter's mouth. God routinely puts us through crucibles so that we will be refined and be better people at the end of it. It is good for God to test us. But over and over, we hear, don't test God. It is not for you to test God. So, Peter says, why would we put God to the test? Why would we say, okay, God, you're allowed to save the Gentiles as long as. Why would we put God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers, nor we have been able to bear. Peter's TED Talk has two main points. One, God is sending the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. 
Who are, if God is pouring out his grace on people we don't like, how dare we not pour out our grace on people we don't like? And two, why would we ask new converts to do what our forefathers never could? And that, had to hurt. that one had to sting a little bit. Hey guys, why are we asking the Gentiles to act like Jews when we don't act like very good Jews? Hey, Christians, why do we insist the world act more like Christians when the story of the church is not the story of abject success? There's failure all over the place in big ways and little ways. See, the truth is that the law was good, but the fly in the ointment was the sin in the hearts of man. The law was good, the problem was us. God more than held up his end of the bargain of the law. The law itself did a great job guiding and providing structure for a peaceful, joyful community. But over and over, it had been the people of God that had turned away from God. So Peter says, we Jews have had the law for centuries. We've never been able to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Why are we going to make them? Why should we go make converts just so that there might be more people unable to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law? We might feel that way about our kind of modern pharisaical legalism too. There might be a right way to live. In fact, I'm sure there is. Sexually pure, faithful with money, kind and generous, serving the church, serving the community. And we might say that's the best lifestyle. That's the lifestyle that promotes human thriving. And I would agree with that. I think living like a, for lack of a better word, living like a good Christian dude is the best life. But we might look at the sheer number of Christian leaders who have failed <laughs> given in to greed, power, lust. The number of names is heartbreakingly long. We have a couple of questions when we say, yeah, there is a best way to live. It's, it's living a Christian life. It's being a good Christian person. Don't sin, love your neighbor, all that stuff. I think this is the best life. But when we look at how many of us have failed, we either have to go, well, those people who failed were just jerks and they need to do better. Or maybe we need to, like Peter, say we aren't inviting people into moral living. Now, I certainly hope that moral living is a byproduct of loving Jesus. But moral living is not what causes us to love Jesus. Belonging comes before behavior. Say that again one more time. Belonging comes before behavior. Then Peter continues, and I'll end here. Peter continues with one of the more profound statements in all of the scriptures in verse 11. This is the apostle Peter saying this. If anyone, he was at the transfiguration. He walked on water. If anyone had reason to say, I have learned to live differently, man, it would be Peter. 
And in verse 11, Peter says, but we believe that they, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. There's, I think there is a right way to live. I think everybody would be happier if you stop doing drugs and don't sleep around and don't say naughty words. Well, I mean, whatever it is. I think there's a best way to live, and I think that's the good life. I really do. But it doesn't save. It's a byproduct of salvation, not a cause of salvation. The law is good, but it's not enough. We aren't good enough, <laughs> and we aren't going to be. The law is good, but guys, Jesus is better. The grace of Jesus is better. Let's not make too little of the law. Let's go, the law is great, but man, it so pales in comparison to the grace of Christ. A couple ways to apply this to ourselves. First of all, this changes the way we view ourselves. There is real joy in salvation if we don't hold ourselves, if we haven't made a new law and hold ourselves to it. There's real gratitude. We are constantly going. I, I love that one of the most controversial like lines in a song of my lifetime has been, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. You can't call people a wretch. Oh, I'm a wretch. And the more I learn about my wretchedness, the more the grace of Christ shines as the saving force in my life. There's motivation to live without sin. Not because I think a super cop in the sky is going to send me to hell if, if I don't do stuff right. But rather, there's motivation to live without sin because I love God. Because I don't want anything to come between me and Jesus. He'll continue to love me. I want to love Him too. I want to love Him back. I delight to respond to His grace with obedience. I'm like that slave sitting at the bottom of the mountain going, God will take me? Yes, I'll obey Him. I'm definitely getting the better end of that deal. This also changes the way we view others. In their sin, we find sympathy and even connection instead of judgment and shunning. In their failure, we feel concerned. It makes us worry about people. There's no anger at people who let us down or people who are self-destructing. Rather, in lost people, we find a motivation to be so loving towards them, so forgiving towards them, so filled with grace that they might see through us into the grace of Jesus that has saved us. So as we start Hebrews, the big idea will not be the failure of people or failure of the law, but the supremacy of Christ. If you want to live the best life, if you want to live the, a life away from sin, if you want to live a life with your behavior honoring God the most, the secret is not to keep your eyes on your behavior. The secret is to keep your eyes on Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to read through this story today, for the chance to 
um, to enter into this discussion that's very old and very relevant. Lord, would you help us to be people of grace? Would you help us to be people who receive grace without pride? Not leaning on our own goodness? And would you help us to be people that give grace very easily too? Not insisting people earn our love any more than you have asked us to earn your love. But rather that we would be little models, images of you in the world. Pushing grace around. God, if there's somebody in the room that needs forgiveness, I pray that you would flood them with forgiveness now as they turn to you or are honest with you, say, I'm lost, I am a wretch, I need a new way to live. God, that, that in their repentance, you would rush in and that you would save them. Lord, I pray that each of us would over and over have the ability to say, God, I need your grace, I need your grace. Lord, may you fill our whole vision as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.